Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by researcher and low-carb healthy fat advocate, Belinda Fetke. She is a former registered nurse and current health disruptor. In 2016, her husband, Dr. Gary Fetke, was silenced from talking to his patients in the wider community about the health benefits of reducing sugar and processed carbohydrates, as well as teaching them how to reintroduce healthy, natural fats back into their diet. He was told he was not qualified to give food advice as medicine. Belinda played a central role in advocating for him during this time, and in 2018, he was exonerated and received a written apology from the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency, which had never happened before. In diving deep to explore why her husband was censored, she uncovered research that many organizations of influence would like to keep from the public eye. Today, Belinda shares with us the details of her historical research into the rise of processed, high-carb, sugary foods. She also shares how the Adventist church group has not only played a huge role in the demonization of meat and saturated fat, but how that they are one of the major forces in the promotion of cereals. We also discuss sugar, processed food addiction, and the negative motives and biases that exist in the world of big pharma, big food, and quote-unquote medical research, aka fake news. And she let us in on some of her latest research on the non-nutritive sweetener, Stevia. Belinda, we're so excited to have you today. You have been given the title Belinda Fetke, Health Disruptor. How do you feel about being given this title? And can you explain to our listeners what this means? Well, I think someone tagged me as a health disruptor and I thought, that sounded really cool. So I've used it as a hashtag. I'm not 100% sure what it means. I imagine it means that I've been challenging guidelines, challenging influences on our dietary guidelines and not afraid to speak up. And hopefully, as I've spoken up and challenged these influences, I've raised awareness for other people and started to make changes, started to make people who have influence now counteracting I would say the interests of vested interests, commercial interests, big food, big pharma, and ideology that have been shaping our dietary guidelines for 150 years have now, it's it's really helped put a spotlight on it. I'm certainly not the first and I won't be the last, but right now I think I'm doing a pretty good job of disrupting and, and calling things out and I don't mind it. Well, we personally love it, and we were wondering how we could get our own taglines. So I guess we just need somebody to tag us. <laughs> Thank you for that. So, Belinda, of all the things you've exposed in your search for the truth, what is the most disturbing thing you've uncovered when it comes to the food industry and or the health field? I think the most disturbing thing is the disproportionate influence of big food, big pharma, and ideology. And if you consider that my research started out simply because my husband, who's an orthopedic surgeon, 
way over the other side of the world. We live in Tasmania, almost down near Antarctica. He was reported to the medical board by a dietitian at his hospital for recommending one of his patients with out-of-control blood glucose, requiring a debridement of rotting flesh on the foot from a diabetic complication. He was reported for recommending that person reduce sugar. And, I mean, first of all, we couldn't believe that the medical board had received this report. And then when they told us they were going to investigate it, I just went, this makes no sense. We're talking back in 2012, 2013, when sugar wasn't as big a thing. I mean, Robert Lustig was speaking about it. There were a few people out there really challenging it, and John Yadkin years and years and years before that. But it was still fairly quiet here in Australia, and I'm not sure about the US, as a general rule. So Gary was one of the early disruptors in Australia challenging the role of sugar in our health. And the medical board investigated him for two and a half years for recommending real food, reducing sugar, lowering processed foods out of the diet and increasing or certainly introducing natural healthy fats back into the diet, get rid of the plain saturated oils and the trans fats and all those things. So we were in shock. He was actually able, I mean, he says, when you see the health benefits of a low carbohydrate healthy fat diet, you can never unsee them in the people that he sees as an orthopedic surgeon, the people that he sees with metabolic health problems, inflammation, and the complications of type 2 diabetes. I mean, these conditions are destroying our community. And when you can reverse those, when you can prevent, manage, and even reverse, he says that brings joy back to medicine. And he refused to stop talking about it. But I watched him. <laughs> I watched him, Tim Noakes, lots of the guys from Low Carb Down Under and Low Carb USA and this growing movement. And I'm going, you guys are talking to science, but nobody's listening. So that's when I started to consider who was certainly first off the expert witness that came into Gary's investigation for the medical board and against Gary, trying to determine if an orthopedic surgeon could even talk about sugar, <laughs> processed carbohydrates, and starting to work out his associations at first, I thought he must work for the sugar industry. Why on earth would someone be making these determinations? But I found out he was actually working for the cereal industry. So they tie together, but that was an interesting aha moment for me. And I showed this information to the medical board. I mean, we produced the screen grabs, the links and everything, and they just went, we don't believe you. Whoa, how can you not believe this? Like, it's here. So then I went further and then I just kept going and kept going. And I think I found it as fascinating history. I always loved history when I was at school. So I haven't gone into this to attack anybody in particular. I just find it a really important historical information that I think needs to be shared. I'm not anti-vegan, anti-vegetarian, anti-religion. I'm not anti any of those things. But in my investigation, in my research, I've found that these influences are taking away the choice for Gary to prescribe to his patients to improve their health outcomes and for people to choose. They've been influencing the guidelines that are pro-cereal grain plant-biased, as I try to call them, and demonising animal proteins and fats in our diet. And that's not fair when those things can improve people's outcomes. It's about choice. And why should that choice be taken away from people and from healthcare professionals by regulation 
when it's going to make people better. So that's where I've gone and I think that's my biggest concern is just challenging those. Yeah, well, I definitely follow you on LinkedIn and I love all of the things you uncover and you post and you share with everyone. And I think you spoke to that there where you're like, you just feel like you have to keep digging deeper to find out more about like, if this is true, then what does this mean about how this all started? And I'm hoping you can speak to some of the historical highlights of how animal protein, animal products came to be demonized in the first place. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I think we'll we'll go back. Gary described nutrition science a long time ago when he was doing his nutritional model of modern medicine, of, of nutrition, sorry, nutritional model of modern disease. And he did a talk about that in 2013. And if you consider his nutritional model of the science and my nutritional model of the non-science, you put those things together. So we need essential proteins in our diet. We need essential fatty acids and we need essential vitamins and minerals. We need macronutrients and micronutrients that improve our health. So if you purely look at the science, we can use non-essential carbohydrates for our diet, but we don't have to because our bodies can make all the glucose that we need. So we can use those things. That's that's science. That's biochemistry. It's not my forte. It's Gary's. I listen to him and <laughs> listen to the others. This is science. I have looked at the influences of nutrition science outside the body, and that's cultural beliefs, ethical beliefs, religious ideology, which I was surprised I hadn't considered, and the vested interests. And I can tell you, these vested interests that are shaping nutrition science outside our body are very, very powerful. But even more so, when when you put the vested interests and the religious ideology together, the vested interests are intent on minimising the harms or the public health message, minimising the harms of sugar in our diet. The public health message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and their ideology is promoting a Garden of Eden diet, the health benefits of fruits, nuts and seeds, which they believe and have been taught from visions of the church co-founder back in 1863 that these foods are the God-appointed diet for man. And If you look at the commercial arm of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they own 20-plus food industries and a major, major one in Australia, which goes beyond the food industry as well into health and wellness corporate programs and all sorts of other things. But their belief, their public health message and the public health message of the vested interests have somehow aligned because they both demonise animal proteins and fats and they're both pro-zero-grain soy plant-biased messaging. And when these entities align, they become very powerful allies. And as I've gone back through history, looking at the temperance movement, in the temperance movement, the prohibition of alcohol really gave birth to the sugar industry. Suddenly the American bar was ice cream sodas and ice creams and all these other things. Like Sugar became an acceptable drug in in prohibition of alcohol. So Coca-Cola, all of these things really birthed in that early 1900s. Sure, sugar was around for a long time before that, but it really became a substance of concern in the 1900s. And then you've got the temperance health reformers, which the Seventh-day Adventist Church is based on, and it started before them, of course, earlier with Sylvester Graham and the Bible Christian community. So you're looking at a group of people who didn't just prohibit alcohol, but they felt that all toxic stimulants were bad. 
and this included tobacco, caffeine, spices, and meat. Unexpectedly, meat. Ellen G. White, the founder of the church, had a vision from God, claimed to have a vision from God, telling her that flesh meat stirred baser passions and animal propensities, which led to the most heinous sin of all time at that point was considered self-vice. And self-vice is the Puritan term for masturbation. So they're anti-flesh meat, anti-meat, fat, and the blood of animals come from the First Testament in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the difference is, compared to the Jewish religion, the difference is Ellen G. White made healthful living. She brought this desire to rid flesh meat from our diet into the actual doctrine of the church. And every member of the church is supposed to be a medical evangelism. Sorry, medical evangelism is the right arm of the church and every person is meant to be a medical evangelist and they use their health reform message as the entering wedge. You may hear people saying, oh, we've got vegetarian cooking classes or we've got this, we're trying to teach. They take it into their into their hospitals, their churches, their communities, and now I've discovered they're taking it into medical education. And we've seen what the demonization of saturated fats for the last 50 years have done in medical education where doctors have feared fat and put people on statins of go low-fat, go low-fat, low-fat. But the vested interests have also used that messaging to put sugar into low-fat products because it tastes so terrible and improve the palatability in it. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church have also used sugars. They've used other things, but they're making not only cereals, soy milks, but fake meat alternatives. And they're very much behind this push. So it's coming from different places. And it's not just the church and it's not just food industry. It's also pharma. Like it's a, it's a triangle of things. Well, And then you can include the chemical industries, the running fertilizers and the crops and things. So it's quite multi-pronged. But the food industry and ideology are into the dietary guidelines. They're in with associations. They're creating resources for people and they're it's very, very big. And I think we need to be discussing it and we need to challenge who is not necessarily declaring their conflict of interest. Because in America, you have the Sunshine Act and you have to declare a financial conflict of interest, but you don't have to declare an ideology, which in my mind is almost more powerful. If you believe that getting rid of flesh meats, animal proteins and fats out of the diet is healthful living for a religious belief and that you need to take that message to the people to save them as well and you believe that Jesus won't come back until enough people have given up animal proteins and fats, that's a very, very big purpose. Wow, absolutely. And and a lot of what you just said kind of um, speaks to how big food as it exists today ties into this historical kind of Ellen yes. White and, and Seventh-day Adventists and, and what I've heard, you know, I've heard you speak on this before and, and my confusion has always come, or maybe not confusion, but wanting to just be very clear, like, so there's this ideology aspect or religious aspect or, or some other aspect than meets corporation of some kind, um, mm-hmm. be it big food, be it pharma, be it the chemical industry, whoever, and they all come together and they have a similar 
goal outcome, but they yeah. don't necessarily all <laughs> no. <laughs> work together necessarily, but, but that they have a similar outcome that they're all working for. And so then it can all almost feel daunting for the little guy. You know, I'm at the grocery store. My clients are at the grocery store sending me pictures. Does this look okay? Does this look okay? Mm -hmm. Right. And we're trying to walk people through it. And so I'm just wondering, you know, having that idea, you know, this triangle picture that, that that's, you know, a driving force behind the products that are on our shelves, you know, how does that tie into this message that you've been, you know, trying to give of like, how do we research it? I guess, like, how do we know, you know, that, that big, am, I don't that know. There are all these entities. Yeah. Yes. That, that, yes. So there's so much influence. And I think mm-hmm. in Australia, I can, I can demonstrate it really well in Australia because our biggest cereal producer in Australia is Sanitarium, which is wholly owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In America, Loma Linda Foods was the only church-owned industry and it was sold to Kellogg's in 1990, and it's since changing hands and it's gone back to Worthington Foods and Heritage Foods. Now, I, I don't know. It, it moves around. That was the only one. But in Australia, Ellen G. White came and set up Sanitarium based on John Harvey Kellogg's, Wilkeith's Kellogg's model. Because while John Harvey Kellogg and his brother grew up as devout Seventh-day Adventists, and John Harvey Kellogg worked as a doctor at the Adventist-owned and founded Battle Creek Sanitarium, he, he set up an experimental kitchen and he wanted to create what he called health foods. But if you consider what health foods actually mean, and I think that's where a lot of people get confused. I was confused. Your clients, your, your people will be confused because we've been brainwashed to believe health foods are not animal pro, proteins or fats. Organ meats. Organ meats are probably the healthiest, most bioavailable, nutrient-dense foods we could have, and they're cheap but they're not called health foods. You go into the health food aisle and it's all processed foods. So this started, John Harvey Kellogg invented the very first commercial meat alternative, protos. A vegetable, you know, huge gelatinous vegetable protein in the can. He invented nut meat analogs. He invented foods to take the place of meat, milk and butter, which is what Ellen G. White set up Sanitarium to do. She actually wrote the health food business is to supply the people with foods which will take the place of meat, milk, and butter. So we have this industry here in Australia who doesn't only produce foods. As I mentioned, it does corporate wellness programs. They invest a lot of money in overseas businesses as well. But I think their influence, they provided resource fact sheets for our GPs in Australia for 20 years to push a button on their desktop computer without them even realizing and these sanitarium health food company health and well-being resources were printed to give to patients telling them about demonizing saturated animal fats and proteins and promoting fruits grains nuts and seeds including their own products wheat fixed so now in further research i've done sanitarium or the the person who has been involved in creating the health star ratings which you would read when you see the labels in your supermarket the person involved in developing the algorithms is one of the key people in sanitarium so sanitarium again are taking their messaging into this health food arena and giving the star rating on our health foods which is no wonder their products get a product called up and go which is a chemical storm 
it gets four and a half, five stars if it's got stevia because they count the algorithms are biased towards plants and if you have any animal products in it, we lose all the stars. It's a very flawed situation and I would say if you look at the group who've been on the dietary guidelines in America, you have someone who was is a very devout Seventh-day Adventist and has been hugely involved in research going back 20 years and involved in the dietary guidelines, but specifically on the dietary guidelines committee this year. And he has this belief that we need to demonise animal proteins and fats. So I don't believe any religious ideology should be creating public policy. I'm not suggesting they can't create these ideas or this belief or this teaching in their own church, and if people choose to follow that, that is their choice. But he's there creating public policy after having, in 2018, written an actual article. It's called The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Diet, and he's written it with a group of people from Loma Linda University. And in that paper, it actually states that they believe nutrition science started with the advent of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So if they believe nutrition science started then because God is the author of science, in their belief, he started Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and it was just fruits, nuts and seeds, then that's what we need to go back to. So you have a man who's very, very powerful and very influential with that belief. And then you have at least six people on the Dietary Guidelines Committee working for, having worked for in the past, ILSI, which is the International Life Sciences Institute, which was founded by Coca-Cola in 19, or the vice president of Coca-Cola in 1978. And it's pretty much the parent body of food, chemical, pharmaceutical. I mean, this is the body that's creating research, minimising the harms of sugar and promoting plant-biased diets. So, and I believe that's for profit. If you look at this, I mean, it, it totally makes sense historically. So then you go back and say, I've looked at this temperance movements and how they both have allowed cereal and sugar to become the predominant food in our diet, cereal and then plant-based diets, the cereals, the soys and things. So in 1946-48, a guy called Mervyn Harding from the College of Medical Evangelists, which was what Loma Linda University was called previously, he started a doctoral thesis. He wanted to prove that a plant-based diet was healthy. And you have to admire him. Like He was absolutely believing in this diet. So he did his doctoral thesis under Fred Stair at Harvard University. Now, Fred Stair's public health department was literally bankrolled by the food industry. And he was found to have been in the pocket of big sugar through Kristen Kern's um, work and Gary Taub's. So imagine him when this guy from the College of Medical Evangelists comes to do his doctoral thesis and says he's literally gifted the research he's being paid to do comes to him <laughs> on a platter. So by 1954-1956, their research was starting to really influence dietary guidelines. Again, they are starting to get into the Dietitians Association of America, and you can see it starts to grow and grow and grow. And from there, I'd suggest if anyone's interested in seeing the historical influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church 
on the um, American Dietary American Dietitians Association, sorry, which is now called the AND. There's a guy called Reese Southern, S-O-U-T-H-A-N, and he has done the most incredibly heavily referenced website, just showing that influence probably from around that stage all the way through, including a woman called Kathleen Zolba, who was a devout Adventist, became the head of the American Dietetic Association around the time when the vegetarian position papers were all starting to come through and say, yes, of course, it's healthy. So you can't dismiss the influence of this group. But I say they've aligned with industry because they're both powerful allies and it suits their purpose. And I call it a symbiotic relationship. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's not, they're not doing it because they believe in each other's message. They're doing it because helps them go further. Yeah. It's mutually beneficial for sure. Absolutely. That makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense. And so it also makes sense with all these members sitting on the board that recently the U.S. decided not to follow recommendations in two areas of alcohol and sugar in reducing the intake of that. I've heard you talk about the nutrition and food guidelines needing to change. If these individuals continue to sit on these boards How on earth is that ever going to happen? Exactly. And I think that's what I've looked at and Reese really points out. These people are sitting on these boards, sitting on influential places, um, influencing these guidelines. And I looked at the vegetarian position paper for the um, Australian Dietitians Association, the DAA, and every single one of them, every single one was written by a Seventh-day Adventist or someone working for sanitarium or part of the Seventh-day Adventist Health Ministries in the US, or Kellogg's. And you think, do our dietitians realise? I think this is really important. So it's not just the public looking at health star ratings and ticks or whatever you have in America to give guides as to what's healthy and what's not in your health foods. But we have dietitians and doctors being educated by the food industry, and that food industry could be also based on ideology. We have them being influenced and educated I don't know if you've seen, uh, Michelle Simon did a big article years ago on the, actually did the American Dietetics Association and the Dietitians Association of Australia and just put all of their sponsors on there. And it's massively influenced by money coming in to help educate. It's not fair. It's not fair. And do dietitians actually realise in Australia that their parent body who regulates accredits and educates is taking so much money from the cereal industry and the sugar industry and all these other things. I think this is a massive issue which needs to be discussed. Absolutely. And, you know, not to throw Clarissa under the bus, but certainly part of her story has been, right? The the health food store. Yeah. Like, right. Getting all the bars and all the things. All the the health halo effect about this is healthy. So eat this and reduce calories and exercise more, eat less like that. I definitely fed into that. And like my father as well as a physician. And that was the messaging that he was given, you Mm -hmm. know, these are the foods you eat, Canada's food guide. And if you are overweight, then you probably need to eat less and exercise more because that's what the research says, right? Yes, that's certainly the messaging Coca-Cola's liked to push <laughs> and and that's Ilzy. But I think Coca-Cola and so in regards to my actual research, when I look at 
the vested interests of particular concern in my work that I've done in Science and Gary. When I've looked at the entities, Science and Gary and Tim Noakes, it's Coca-Cola and Sanitarium here in Australia. And these entities say different public health messages, different public health agendas, but they align in the demonization of animal proteins and fats because it pushes the plant-biased health food messaging, which so many of us fall for. And so you are not alone, Clarissa. It's it's going into looking at the ingredients. I mean, health food is processed. The health food aisle is processed. And we've forgotten real foods. You know, how do we look at going back and eating real food instead and, and in educating people in not fearing fat, but the healthy fats? And and how do you get people to shop on the outside of the supermarket rather than inside, which is targeting and messaging us constantly that it's healthy, fiber, less sugar, this, that, but it's not. It's just, it's highly processed food. Yeah. No, it's so, you you nail it. Like I usually, when I talk to my clients, I'm like, eat foods without ingredient labels. It's as simple as that, right? Because then you don't have to question it. I did uh, hear you talking about Coca-Cola and International Life Sciences Institute. I just wanted to touch on it because I know recently Coca-Cola has left that organization. And, you know, and we did talk about how they do the quote unquote research that it's physical exercise, not a change in diet that combats obesity. Do you think Coca-Cola leaving this group signals a change in the industry? Or do you think consumer buying power and the fact that people are starting to do some research means that they have been alerted and think it's non-profitable to be part of that industry any longer. I don't think they think it's non-profitable to be part of that industry, but I think that industry, I think Ilse and a lot of the scientists and the research that's coming out of it are feeling devalued because of Coca-Cola's association. So in my mind, it's a bit like the Dietitians Association of Australia. The more I challenged, the more they had to, and I'm not saying just me, David Gillespie and a lot of other people in Australia have also been very vocal about their sponsorships. But I started writing about a doctor that was being dictated, like a a doctor who was actually being regulated because of their influence was really putting a lot of spotlight and a lot of pressure on them. So the DAA announced after I did a few big posts, they were um, stopping all sponsorship with food industry. And that's massive. <laughs> Whereas, oh my gosh, but of course, instead of sponsoring them, now they can do advertising at all their events and they can pay for this and they can pay for this. I would think that the actual validity of the work that Ilzi is supposedly doing has been compromised by the influence of Coca-Cola and the highlight of Coca-Cola being part of that group. So by taking Coca-Cola out, now a lot of the science scientists might be able to say, well, we've gotten rid of them. So now it's we can validate our work. But if you think that Philip Morris, the big tobacco industries, were part of Ilse at the beginning, and as they became demonized because of their tactics in marketing cigarettes, they brought up the food industry. They became craft. They became different names. And I can't believe that Coca-Cola and how powerful they are 
won't want to still be part of it in some way or have they left such a huge legacy and so many people in there, it doesn't really matter anyway. I think it's very symbiotic that they have said that they're leaving, but whether they've actually go, <laughs> Philip Morris went as a tobacco industry. I was looking at the um, World Economic Forum and who's partnering with them, different people who are still pushing this plant bias message as we go forward and influencing the future of meat in my mind. And if you look at you look at the groups who are founding and funding, sponsoring the World, World Economic Forum, the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diets, I mean, these things might not be something that's familiar to your viewers, but they're welcome to go look on my website. I write lots about all these sort of things. And certainly one of my latest talks is going further than just stopping with the present, but what's happening in the future. And I saw FEMSA, I, I couldn't believe Coca-Cola wasn't anywhere on this group. PepsiCo and all these others were. And FEMSA, who's FEMSA? FEMSA is Coca-Cola Mexico. But they left out Coca-Cola FEMSA and they just put FEMSA up. So in my mind, it'll be interesting to see if Ilse really does, um, if Coca-Cola really does leave Ilse or will they use one of their other brands? I mean, they have got a suite of brands under their name. So everyone thinks Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, the bottle of Coca-Cola, but they have got iced teas, they've got waters, they've got so many things. But FEMSA is worth looking out for because that is just, in my mind, so non-transparent to say FEMSA's sponsoring this and not actually acknowledge that it's really Coca-Cola. Yeah, I feel like we need to put like in our show notes, we need to put like pay attention for these names, right? We need to have a list. Just like we have a list of all the names for sugar, we need to have a list for all the names of Coca-Cola or Kraft or Big Food, however they show up. You know, I just think it's- It would be a very long list. Yeah, well, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I read a quote by you the other day and it said, nobody wants to be told they're addicted to anything, let alone when it tastes good and is natural. So in all of your research, have you come across any evidence that processed foods- and sugar are addictive, that Big Food knows they're creating these products that hijack our brains, like any tangible evidence of that? I think the quote was actually Gary's and I probably stole it. <laughs> so we'll put it back to him. Gary has looked at so much research to uncover all this. He, he and Robert Lustig have chatted a lot. And the Australian of the Year 2020, James Mickey, he has also really been highlighting this whole issue with sugar, sugar addiction, and that he believes sugar and processed carbohydrates have led to the increasing blindness that he's seeing as an ophthalmologist in Australia. So personally, I haven't gone down a lot of the research in actually seeing what the actual scientific research, because I'm so busy, so busy just working out who's corrupting it, <laughs> who's giving the wrong messaging. But definitely when I look at the work of Robert Lustig and I look at the work of Joan Ifland and I look at your work, there's no doubt that sugar hijacks our brain and influences the same receptors, dopamine receptors as drugs. Like it's it's quite scary. Gary and I opened a, a centre for a few years called Nutrition for Life and we had dietitians, nutritionists and diabetes educator working there. And like your program, we found you can't just tell someone to give up sugar and processed carbs because 
it is really, really hard. And we promoted a wraparound support group and, and we said it was like SAM. It was support, accountability and motivation. And people need that. Out in society, I'd say it took me a long time to give up sugar. Gary, despite being, I would say, a carb addict for his entire life, when he knew that eating the sugars and the processed carbohydrates was affecting his health, I didn't go into this at the beginning, but Gary was diagnosed with a very aggressive pituitary cancer in 2000. And for the first 12 years, he was trying to research all the time how to get rid of this cancer. He had surgery, he had radiotherapy, and he had chemotherapy for 13 years on and off. And I'm not suggesting those weren't important at the time because his cancer was found very late and it was very aggressive, but food, sugar were never discussed as an adjunct therapy. And he had to find it himself. So when he realized that his particular tumor, his cancer, thrived on glucose sugar and simply taking sugar and processed carbohydrates out of his diet put his cancer into remission and he's been off chemo for six, nearly seven years now. This is why he started doing the research. This is why he started talking about this sort of thing and understanding that he was able to just give it up like that because he said, I'm not going to feed this cancer anymore. I can't afford to. In 2009, they said there was nothing more they could do for him. He didn't want to die. I didn't have that health pressure on me. So I would say it took me a year to wean off that last bit of sugar in my tea. (laughs) I was able to give up the rice and the pasta and all those other sorts of things. I think bread and sugar in my tea were the last things I gave up. Maybe if I'd had more of an issue, I could have been quicker. But I think our society, you walk into a supermarket, Food is there. Those sugary things are just there in your face all the time. You go out with friends, coffee and a cake. (laughs) Oh, I'm not going to have dessert. Oh, really? Far out. Like It doesn't matter if you're getting heavier and you're getting sicker, but as soon as you tell someone you've made the choice to go off sugar, people look at you as if you are crazy, and that's because it threatens them. It threatens their way of life. So this support, accountability, and motivation and providing a community of people that are on the same journey, that have been there and that want to help, I think is just so important. And congratulations on doing it because it's amazing. Yeah, we definitely can find that, you know, there's over 14,000 people in our Facebook groups and they regularly help support each other and it is so beneficial. But one thing we know is treatment for sugar, carbohydrate, food addiction is not covered here. And so both Molly and I actually sit on the board of the Food Addiction Institute and we're working right now on creating proposals and submissions to have this recognized in the DSM and the ICD. So treatment for this disease can be covered and recognized because there are so many individuals that need a more intensive outpatient treatment. So as someone who's been in the trenches and battled against all odds with Gary uh, that were against you. And I'm sure at times felt it felt completely insurmountable. What advice would you give us? And do you think this is something that we might get to see in our lifetime? I'll answer the second bit first. Okay. I do believe it's something you'll get to see in your lifetime. It is, I'm seeing changes already. And I think it's a bit like Coca-Cola leaving Ilzy, it's it's because the public are demanding it. The public are questioning, and this is this is the power of the people. Oh, instead of top down, 
we're doing a bottom-up movement. It's the people going, it's my health and, and challenging those things. Being in the trenches, it's uncomfortable, it's challenging, it's time-consuming, and it's so worth it when you see people take back control of their health. When you see those changes, when you have stories come to you and people go, oh, my gosh, I've done it or I'm, I'm doing this again or I've lost this weight, I've, I, I'm not feeling so foggy in my head, I'm not addicted to those substances anymore. But it's, it's not easy for people to come off these things. Some people, they can just give it up and they'll never go back. Gary's one of them. Other people we found when we were working with Nutrition for Life, they, they'd end up being a family celebration and someone would convince them to try a little bit. And as soon as they try that one little bit again, whoa, it was hard to get back. But I think the really important thing is never give up giving up. It's not a bad thing. It's just, okay, you know you did it before, so it gets easier and easier and easier every time you make that decision to try again and get back with those same people who will motivate you, get back with the group, and, yeah, just keep working through that. So as a health disruptor, there were, I mean, Gary risked his medical licence to keep talking about reducing sugar and processed carbs in the diet. The medical board investigated him for two and a half years and their determination at the end, he became the only medical doctor in the world silenced from ever talking about nutrition or sugar to his patients, to the wider community, and it was lifelong and non-appellable. So that's why I became very, very loud. And it took us another two years going to the National Health Ombudsman who finally were able to reverse or to throw out all the vexatious allegations against Gary. But that's four and a half years where he was risking his medical licence that entire time. He refused to give up. He refused because he was amputating bits of people's feet and maiming them for a diet-related disease that he could make those changes. So in putting it into an actual document and creating changes was it the dsm did you say yes the dsm and the icd we're working on right now yeah so in making those changes everything else that's in that document i believe and the same with diabetes australia and their documents it's about band-aiding sick care it's about medicating so the hardest thing you're going to have find in trying to make these changes is it isn't a tablet it isn't something like that. In fact, it's threatening an industry that's making profit. I think it's so important and I honestly believe that our authorities, our associations can't keep denying it for much longer because people are seeing so much change. I think it will come and congratulations on working towards it. But it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be easy. No, and thank goodness we have many well-educated intelligent people helping us along this journey yes. for sure for sure you know I think you said so many important things there um, I really could relate to when you were talking about you know watching these patients come into your clinic and there would be the ones that could just stop and they would never touch it again and then there would mm. be the ones that would be in and out and it just really reminds me I actually come from the substance abuse world that's how I started all this for 15 okay. years I've been doing mm. other substances mental health that kind of thing and 
you know, we, we always had to remind ourselves because I worked in a facility and, and I always had to remind myself that there is this statistic and not that it's all about statistics, but I had to remind myself 33% will never pick up again. 33% will do that in and out, pick up, put down, pick yes. up, put down. And 33% will just, that's how their life will end is, you know, with the bottle, with the pill, with the needle, with the sugar, whatever it might be. And, and the problem is we don't know which 33% we fall into. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it is that, that support piece and that motivation piece and that accountability, accountability and just yeah. the hope and, and, and all those things. And I think you just nailed it on the head there for sure. So knowing all this, knowing your research background, um, just your life experience, all these things in this age of all the fake news and these dietary guidelines, and we don't know who's influencing who, um, you know, and, and research is being funded by these industries. And so how can our listeners sift through the food confusers, if you will, out there and take their health into their own hands? Like if you could just give them advice today as they're listening, what can they do right now that would take back some of their, you know, empower themselves with their health? Well, I think as you two have alluded to, don't walk down the health food aisle. Buy from the outside. Go to the go to the market. Support local farmers if you possibly can. But not everyone can do that. And I, Gary's got a really good idea. He's suggesting that people eat for their their location. Their you know, if you have farmers that are producing fresh seasonal local foods, support them. Otherwise, choose minimally processed foods and consider organ meats because honestly, they're nutrient dense. They're inexpensive. And I've been told, and our challenge is because it's organuary in the UK, apparently, that we're going to try beef heart. Apparently, if you slice beef heart, it's not nearly as strong as a lot of the other organ meats. We I grew up have... eating it. It's delicious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we have um, amazing pâtés and things that are produced here in Tasmania. I think there's a big movement in our small community because we are a rural community in starting to really consider the whole animal. So it's minimizing waste and maximizing nutrition. And this is a big part going forward, is how do we create a sustainable, ethical future in food? And I think it's getting rid of that processed food because there's so much waste in the packaging. There's so much processing that's being done that people don't even consider that. We're getting a disconnect between our food supply and our health. And if you've grown up like eating beef heart, I grew up eating livers and pate, but I think you know, it's really important. People have been taught to fit. If you look at your dietary guidelines, there's not a single mention on there of an organ meat. Yeah. Why? Because nobody also knows how to cook them or what to do with them, right? That's, I think, a bit of the fear part too. And I think that that needs to be an educational piece that is implemented in so people know what to do with these organ meats. But we've been taught to cook plant foods. That's true. <laughs> Good point, Belinda. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. Uh, I actually started a food rescue program here. And so we would rescue all the food from the grocery store, meat specifically, that wasn't bought. And then we took it to the food bank where we help people yeah. who have less than. And a lot of it was organ meat. And so we had to wow. provide recipes in order to educate individuals on what to do with these meats because 
these organ meats are being wasted right now because nobody knows and they fear them. So I definitely think like some kind of beautiful organ campaign would be, maybe that's the next thing we need to start. (laughs) (laughs) So how do our listeners find you? I've got a website called I Support Gary, which I write on every now and again when I think of a new article. I've actually got so many in my head, I can't even, I've got a whole lot started. I was going to mention stevia. I was going to mention non-additive, non-nutrient, what is it? They call them non-nutritive additives and sweeteners. Yes, yeah. And, and just have a quick little discussion. Have we got time? Oh, please, please do. Yeah, I was going to go down that line. I've, in my research, again, Sanitarium, the Seventh-day Adventist Sanitarium Health and Wellbeing company that makes food, have been doing massive research into stevia. And they've actually gone, I haven't done my article on this yet, so you girls are getting the <laughs> first bit, but they've been working on um, seeds, creating Rebe, doing all the studies on it, and now are part owners of the largest private, fully integrated stevia company in the world. And nobody knows that in Australia. So why the health star ratings, you know, where's all this push for it to become recognised as safe and where is the push for it to go into the health star ratings? Now in Australia, that up and go that I mentioned before, if they've got stevia in it, which is their product, and they've done all the research on, it gets five stars, even though it's full of just junk stuff where it's got stevia. So I've been looking more and more into stevia and the non-nutritive sweeteners. I think I've got it right now. And unlike all the others, stevia is the only one that's bioactive. And people haven't really considered this. If you go back in the history, and I was looking at the work of, I think her name is Sarah Ballantyne. She's a PhD student, a PhD doctorate. And she has looked back. So stevia's come from South America. And it appears that the um, it's been used for centuries to sweeten really bitter teas and different things that they were making. But they were also using it as a contraceptive. It's an endocrine disruptor. Maybe Gary's always talked about using erythritol, stevia, monk fruit, and all those other things, a bit like a methadone program, because some people find it really hard and they want to give up sugar straight away. And these things can help people change over time and reduce their sweetness. But if you consider that potentially stevia may be an endocrine disruptor, and it may also affect our gut microbiome and this is the work of Sarah and others she puts references to different research that's on that website she actually goes under the paleomum.com website but she is a doctorate a doctor and I'm really concerned that okay small amounts and as a weaning off it's probably fine but if you use a lot of stevia is I think what we found was a lot of people try to mimic their Western diet eating when they trans when they go over to a low carb diet and they want to do all the baking and they want to do all the things that they did before so they don't feel like they're missing out. Honestly, the easiest thing to do, and I wish I told my previous self, is just eat real seasonal food. Go back to the simple way of eating. Okay, the occasional cake's okay, but you don't want to bake every single week and you don't want to be putting stevia in your food multiple times a day at this point in time when they don't have enough research into the actual effects it could have on your body and in my mind looking at the work that sanitarium's doing and this stevia company that they have co-founded and a part of tate and lyle 
is that in the UK, I think, is the biggest sugar sweetener provider. And they provide all the sugars and sweeteners for Coca-Cola and you know, all the major cereals and food companies. So again, okay, they might be doing stevia to get rid of sugar, but really they're just promoting the processed foods that could swap out sugar for stevia. And maybe stevia might not be as good. Also, you've got to consider that our brains consider that as a sweetener and it confuses some of the messaging. So looking into this, okay, to have a little bit might be all right. But if your brain reacts to that stimulus of a sweetener, potentially type 2 diabetes could still be a risk. And if you're producing a lot of adrenaline and cortisone in response to that sweetness and then the sweetness isn't actually there, it's just confused your tongue and your brain, then what could that potentially be doing to our bodies also? So I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done into it. And I think, unfortunately, it's a, it's another thing like the trans fats and the margarine. It's another thing. Let's get this health food business is to take the place of flesh meat, milk, butter, and sugar. But all of those replacement things might not actually be as healthy as we've been led to believe. Right. Well, and stevia is a plant. And like you talk about the coca plant, or we know about the right, like the coca plant versus the stevia plant. And then like, once we refine them, right, it's a whole nother animal. And so Mm -hmm. it just leads me to believe like, if this is a plant that's found in South America and they've used it for centuries, it probably has a different impact on the body in that use methodology, right. Versus us grinding it up and making it into a powder. Yet again, we're talking about a powder, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and the stevia leaf has, you know, each of the different stevias, a stevia leaf, I think when you eat it has one of the elements, but when you grind up the stevia plant, you end up with 10 of the elements. So yes, you're changing the um, composition of it. Well, so we have this signature question and I feel like you kind of answered it, but you know, <laughs> we, we try to ask everybody this question of like, if you could tell yourself a, a, a younger version of yourself, something about sugar or processed foods, you know, what would it be? Well, if I could tell my younger version of myself, I'll make it a bit interesting. I grew up in a house with a mum who had been a dental nurse. So she didn't encourage the sugars and the processed foods. She, we didn't have a lot of money. So we cooked. Our meals were based on meat and veg. Um, Occasionally she might cook something or bake something, but I grew up on organ meats and all of those other things. I met Gary when I was 16. He grew up in the complete opposite. He grew up processed food, plant saturated oils, all of those things. And if my younger self had instead influenced him to eat how I ate instead of being influenced by him, that's what I would tell my younger self, be stronger. He should be eating the way we eat, not the way he eats, because I do believe his high diet of sugar, like he had barbecue sauce on everything. He loved and ate cereals, breads. Like, well, he was told to eat six to 11 serves of carbohydrate per day, and he did. He ate all of those. My younger self, I actually didn't eat breakfast. It was just something I naturally chose not to do because I didn't like cereal. So I would eat my breakfast, break my fast at around lunchtime. And I loved meat and veg. I loved leftovers. And I think I had this man telling me from the time he started medical school, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You have to eat cereals. So that's what my younger self would have done. Ignore him. <laughs> Love him, but ignore him. <laughs> oh, that's so fascinating. 
Thank you so much, Belinda, for joining us today. This has been incredible. I am going to now dive deep into stevia myself and start figuring out what I can, because it's definitely, I would say, even in the circles that we're in, one of the more recommended sweeteners Mm -hmm. for clients in that transition period, even though it's a hundred times sweeter than sugar. And we know, you know, it does take time for this taste buds to return once you cut out sugar. And so if mm-hmm. we're constantly hijacking that process too with the microbiome, like it really does make you question, you know, what you these- also have to yeah, you also have to consider what they use as a bulking agent because a lot of if they sell stevia, mm-hmm. I know you can buy it as a small thing, but a lot of them are now starting to bulk it up to mm-hmm. sell it so people can measure it more easily into the things that they're going to bake. But yes, I'd definitely be looking at it. I'm not saying it's harmful per se, but I'm suggesting we investigate it more. Yeah, right, be curious. Yes, be right, exactly. Like the N equals one, poison is in the dose, you know, kind of aspect to it. Just, yes, a question, but yeah. pay attention and absolutely, yeah. Well, and if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> and if it tastes too good to be true, it definitely is. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> You're going to make people think we don't eat good tasting food. No, course. no, no. I <laughs> love my food. <laughs> I needed my taste buds to come back to life from getting mm-hmm. off the processed food in order to enjoy right. my real food. <laughs> right. Well, hopefully people will be encouraged to eat more organ meat after hearing what you had to say, Belinda. And, and certainly, you know, that would be, you know, a cookbook or whatever. And, you know, it's funny, my husband and I um, were hunters, all the, like we live in Montana. So we're, you know, we're hunters, like that's how we get a lot of our meat for the year. And there is a guy named Stephen Ranella who has this company called Meat Eater and he has a a show on Netflix and he has books, but like, like he, he teaches you how to butcher the animal. He teaches you Mm -hmm. how to use it, you know, nose to tail, um, all the, you know, all the different aspects that, and he has recipes and, you know, I mean, he seems very approachable. And, and so it's, it's just those kinds of things. I think that we're right, that we just need to become more mainstream right now. That's such an outlier, you know, of an example, but if we can make these more mainstream, these organ meats and and eating nose to tail and, and realizing that the health food aisles are not healthy at all. And really it should be these perimeters, you know, I think, again, just listening to somebody like you, who's such, you know, an, an expert on the topic and such a force, you know, like you said, Gary couldn't use his voice, <laughs> but you stood in front of him and you used your voice. And I think, you know, that's where we come with this show too. Our clients can only hear us say it so many times before they need to hear it from somebody else in a different yeah. way. Right. So I just appreciate you being here today. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. I've really appreciated it too. And All the best to everyone who's listening. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. 
Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>